episode of Mugs with Moms. I'm Micah, and again, we are on week two of doing phone interviews. I'm so happy and thankful that my guests have been able to do this. Uh, It's been a very crazy time for all of us, I know, so I'm very excited to introduce this next guest. Before I do... I wanted to start this podcast with a quote that I found um, about motherhood, and it is, being a mother is learning about strengths you didn't know you had and dealing with fears you never knew existed. And I think after listening to this podcast, you'll see some things in that that will resonate with you. And if you've ever dealt with anything difficult, to say the least, and the struggles through motherhood in general are, they're endless. So today with me is Tracy. Tracy, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I am pretty good. Pretty good for somebody who's been in the house for about two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) You are currently in Florida, right? Yes. My mother just moved to a retirement community down here and we came to help her get settled in because she's of the retirement age, so things are a little rougher. So me and one of my three children, one third of them with me, we came down here to help her get situated. With your story, we're going to discuss some very challenging things that you yourself have experienced. And so you said you have three children. Yes. So I have Brenna, who is technically my stepdaughter. Um, She will be actually 16 on April 1st. And then I have Katie, who is eight, and she is also my stepdaughter. And then my biological son, Duncan, who's also eight. So the eight-year-olds are two months apart. Oh, wow. I'm sure. Do they get along really well? They do. Um, So as we'll talk about, um, both of my stepdaughters have special needs. And the eight-year-old has extreme special needs. So mentally, she's about 36 months old. Um, but he is so protective over her and to watch them because they're in the same grade. So to watch them at lunch and recess together, it's the most beautiful thing. He's so protective. It's, oh, it's amazing. You would never know that they were not biological siblings. Oh, I love that. That's so sweet. And it's so, it's so hard to blend a family sometimes, but to have children connect so well together makes it just heartwarming. It really is. Yeah. To watch them together, it's, oh, it just makes my heart bleed. We will get into the background of when this all started, but I want to know a little bit more about you. So what is your background and what do you do for a living? Kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am 38. I'm married to a U.S. Army soldier and we moved to Indiana three years ago for the Army. We have... We blended our families when we actually moved here. So not only were we in a family relationship, but we were living separately and moving across the country from Colorado together. I was a single mom and a pediatric nurse in Colorado where we have been living for the time for five years. When he and I started dating, we moved across the country, like I said, and going from a single mom of one to a mom of three, two of which had special needs, the nursing lifestyle and schedule just did not work for my family. The $1,500 a month of daycare did not work for my family. So I was actually looking for a nurse, school nurse job when I found the job that I work now. And I do special education behavioral interventions. So I work with different kids who either have behavior issues or sometimes have learning challenges that creates behavior issues. And I go either into the classrooms, I pull them out of the classrooms and help redirect them and realign them to make them the most successful that they can be. And that's pretty incredible that you went from pediatric nursing to this position. I mean, that is, uh, do you find similarities in that? Yes. So this is, it's so funny because when I was starting into nursing, I said the one thing that I hated the most was psychology. I wanted nothing to do with psych nursing. It was, to me, it's way too challenging and it's way too liquid because not, it's way too fluid, not two people with the same diagnosis are the same. And it's very hard, especially when you have a science brain. So when I got offered this job, I said, oh, my one of my best friends who's also nurse, she goes, Tracy, this is like psych nursing. I was like, I know, but, and I love it. I, I cannot imagine doing anything else. And it's hilarious because when I was in my 20s, I swore that I didn't want children. I did not like small people. They leaked. They were gross. And now I'm a mom of three and I work with kids. So... <laughs> 
it's crazy how our, know, our minds change and everything in the world just kind of like, nope, this is what you're going to do. Yeah, you know, just anyone out there who's in their early 20s, don't base your life on what you think right now because it'll change. <laughs> it's going to change every, even now, I think of things that, you know, I wanted even last year and I'm like, ah, it's, it's, it's gotten a little different for me as well. So how long have you, has your family been a family? How long have you had a blended family? So my husband and I started dating March of 2017, so only three years. And we blended our family when we moved, like I said, in July of 2017. Okay. So just three just three years now. And it's kind of a weird um, situation. Anyone who's been around the Army or military, it's this is kind of common. But we actually knew each, we've known each other for 10 years. And we knew each other when we all lived in Oklahoma and where my first husband and my husband now were both stationed. And they were in the same unit and there was a lot of us that were all friends together because they were all in the same working unit. There was nothing salacious or anything like that that happened back then, but we just all knew who each other was. And there was four families that spent a lot of time together. Well, of those four families, three ended up in Colorado. Oh, and wow. two of those families ended up divorced, my family and my now husband's family. And I was actually the nurse for his best friend's kids. And he told me that um, Tim, my husband, and his ex-wife, or his current wife at the time, ex-wife, Becca, had gotten a divorce. And I said, oh, I always thought Tim was so handsome. And it was one of those, like, foot in the mouth, like, I can't believe I said that. And his... <laughs> And Chris was like, oh, I'll make sure I pass that along. And I'm like, oh, no, please don't. Like, I'm so embarrassed. And it was so unprofessional. And I was, you know, like, I'm in my uniform. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And I was just totally embarrassed. And about two days later, he asked me out to lunch. And kind of the rest is history. Um, two months later, we moved to, Colorado, or moved to Indiana from Colorado. So it was kind of a whirlwind. And it was unique because we'd known each other for 10 years. But we'd only been dating for two months. So it's like, you know this person, but you don't know this person at the same time. So it was, we just knew right away and he had already had his orders and we didn't want to miss the opportunity of what that relationship was presenting. So we just went with it. I think that's incredible too, how that connection happened and that you were giving up this part of your life for this new life. Yeah. And it's more than just, a, you, know, you weren't giving up who you are, but you were, you just flipped your life for a family and um one i think that's incredible i think that's brave of you to do that you were a nurse which takes a lot of time and not only a lot of time as a job but it took you a long time to get there it's not something you just get to do you know you get to sign up for it takes a long time to do that yes and i was actually in school furthering my education um to get the, to the next level of nursing from where i was and was working full-time, was in school full-time, and I was, um, which is a whole other story, but I was actually on a weight loss journey. And um, so I was working out, I was eating right, all of that, and then I threw a, because I wasn't dating at all. I had not been on a date with anyone in over six months. And, you know, I was single, fairly attractive girl, and was just had completely shut myself off to that at all and then just out of nowhere here comes this man with these two kids who have all these complications and all of this other stuff going on and it was really strange because there wasn't even a moment where I second guessed at all it was just immediate that I knew that this is where I needed to be I needed to take care of these girls and I needed to be with this man and it was really to think back on it I was like I was crazy but it just I just knew like I need to take care of these little girls and I need to be with this man and both of our hearts need to heal and as he and I healed each other I just more and more grew close to these girls and more like I'm their mom and they both call me mom now three years later it's beautiful and it's just my son calls him dad and it and we just let it all happen organically and that there wasn't any talks about it. They just started doing it. And it, it's just wonderful the way it developed, even though there has been so many struggles. And do you mind sharing with, with having such a blended family, do you mind sharing the custody arrangements? We are both in a way fortunate. Um, obviously, unfortunate things have to happen for the custody, custody arrangement that we do have. Colorado doesn't do like most states where it's this 
percentage of custody or that percentage of custody, they break it down into different categories. So they have decision-making ability, parenting time, and residential parent is how they break it up. So of those three categories, there's percentages. So when I got my divorce in 2014, because it was a an abusive relationship and he was a very unstable person um, who was also in the military, I got sole everything of my son. I have sole residential parent, sole parenting time, and sole decision making, which means I decide, it's basically like sole custody is how it would translate into a state that has custody. And then when my husband got a divorce, because the same thing because of the amount of instability of the other parent and the level of abuse that had happened and the D, there was DHS involvement in his case, they had 50-50 decision-making, but if they cannot come to a resolution, then he gets the last say. So basically he has three quarters because he has the last say. If they cannot agree, he gets to decide. And then he has sole residential parenting and she can only see the children, the two girls, supervised by a court official. Oh, wow. And is is so she in the she, same in she in the same state or does it have to be a separate state? She's in Colorado. Um, last we heard, she was not allowed to leave the state with legal issues. I don't know if we'll cover this when I start telling the story, but what kind of spurred the divorce for Tim, my husband, is he he had been very unhappy for a long time. But as most men can relate. When you are the stable one, even if the mom is completely unstable, you fear that the courts will side with the mom. And I hear a lot of men say that. That's a pretty popular thing that men are scared to leave their wives because they're afraid that the courts, just because they're women, will go ahead and side with them. And, And that's great for us ladies, but for men who are in the positions that they're the extremely stable one, it's very unfortunate. And he stayed way longer than he should have. And he knows that. I'm not speaking out of turn or anything. But he knows that he should have left a lot sooner. But that fear kept him there much longer. And she actually got a DUI with both of the girls in the vehicle on a military installation in wow. October of 2016. And that's that immediately DHS stepped in. Uh, the girls were taken away for just a few hours because he was actually in the field. A lot of this story, he will be gone because of the military. He was deployed multiple times. He spent a lot of time in the field. He's a chemical engineer, so he's gone quite a bit. Yeah. And he was gone at that time. I had been gone for about six weeks in the field, but still in the state. And they had to get him back into, it took about four hours to even get him back to the military installation. And then he has to be debriefed and then released. So the girls went into DHS custody just in that transition time because they she was arrested and there was nowhere for them to go. So he got them away from them immediately, but because of their involvement, then they dictated a lot of things. And that was what really helped him with his divorce is because they were so heavily involved that it helped him keep that sole custody of his kids and be able to protect them from her. So we're talking about a lot of dynamics there and stressors there I'm sure but what are some challenges besides maybe potentially a ex-partner or a co-parent what are some challenges that you faced with your children both biological and step so we are very fortunate my biological son he does not remember any of the abuse because I got out very quickly So he doesn't remember anything that happened. Um, He is pretty protective over me. So that's kind of a residual kind of subconscious type thing. And when my husband and I will be like play fighting or wrestling, he will sometimes try to protect me and get between us. And we have to just reassure him. But the girls, there's a lot of challenges. Katie has, that's the eight-year-old younger one. She has fetal alcohol syndrome because of her biological mother, and she's also severely nonverbal autistic. So there's a whole world of challenges that come with that. With autism and fetal alcohol syndrome, there's no typical patient in either respect. So there's lots of people that don't see this or see that, and there's a lot of judgment 
that comes from family, extended family, her, the biological mother's family is still somewhat involved and they get very judgmental with us. The older one, Brenna, who we will focus on quite a bit, she has a lot of challenges and all of hers is mental health. She is extremely intelligent. She has a full-scale IQ of 121. Wow. She's very, very smart. Yes, she's brilliant. In seventh grade, she read at a grade 12, fourth month reading level. She got a 1140 on her PSAT. She's brilliant. But she has a lot of severe mental challenges from the abuse that she suffered. And a lot of it was not presented until I came into her life. And the main diagnosis that we'll discuss, it doesn't present itself until they have a stable figure in their life and that's what's so hard is it's so hard not to blame you because it blame myself because it didn't show its head until I came into her life and it's called reactive attachment disorder and I don't know do you want me to kind of explain reactive attachment disorder yet absolutely so reactive attachment disorder is when a child suffers severe abuse or neglect before the age of five so it's very hard to diagnose especially with kids. It's the most common in foster children or foreign adoption because those kids are given up very early or a lot of times they've been through a lot of abuse or a lot of homes before the adoption happens. It is very rare to have a family who has a biological child that has reactive attachment disorder. So our family is very unique in that, that she does live with her biological dad, but she does have reactive attachment disorder. And she suffered severe neglect and abuse before the age of five, and that's where it comes from. But again, you won't see symptoms a lot of time for years and years until they have a stable figure. And the subject of their abuse is the person that replaced the abuser. So in our case, because she was so heavily abused and neglected by her biological mother, and then I came in at age 13 and became her motherly figure and became stability and tried to nurture and love her that she'd never truly had, I became her victim because she rebels against that and it's terrifying for her. And part of reactive attachment disorder is that their brain gets stuck in survival mode. So uh, people who have never experienced that kind of thing, we will have short stints of fight or flight. And, you know, we're in a scary situation, especially us as moms, you know, we, we have that tingling, that fear to save our kids or to protect them. And then it goes away. Kids who have suffered that and have reactive attachment disorder, they get stuck because those neural pathways get structured at that age to where it never goes past that. So they are always in survival mode 24-7 every single day of their life. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious and if you're comfortable with sharing that because that's a lot. You have a, yes. again, change your life. You're, you are moving to a new state. You started a new career. You are married and you have a blended family. Yeah, it, you know, again, and it's crazy to even stop and think about it, even though I did it. It's just, it was instinctual. It was no different than if it was my own biological child. I just saw a need. Katie was only, so she was five and a half when I came into her life. She only weighed 29 pounds. She was tiny. Um, she didn't eat food. She only drank four Pediasures and like 10 sippy cups. She was still in a sippy cup at five. Uh, she only ate maybe a half a banana a day. It was the only solid food she would intake. And that's very common, honestly, with autistic children is they have a lot of food challenges and they need a lot of heavy therapies to help through that. But here comes me, you know, almost like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but kind of like half-cocked and blind. Like, I'm going to save the day. And I was like, no, she needs to eat. No. And, you know, part of that was that instinctual mother. And I'm from the South. I was born and raised in the South. And it's just that, you know, that Southern mom. And, no, you need to feed that baby. <laughs> you need to give that baby so, something. That baby needs some food and she needs it now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I just kind of came in and I was like, no, we have to feed her. And 
my husband, Tim, he was like, we do feed her, Tracy. You know, I try. And so I understand that you try, but he was juggling so much. A career in the Army, up and coming, very challenging, and doing very well for himself despite everything else he was dealing with because he was essentially a single father because his wife at the time was non-functioning. She was such a heavy alcoholic that if she didn't drink, which I've even in nursing, I had rarely seen this. She was so saturated with alcohol constantly that if she didn't drink to a certain level, she would have DTs. She'd de- detox. And oh a lot of people that drink, they just have to have a little bit of alcohol to kind of get them through the day. You see that a lot. You know, they can have one beer and because they have a little bit of alcohol in their system, they can function. But because she was so saturated, she would have to drink a minimum of a fifth of vodka a day to not have a seizure. Oh my gosh. Like that's extreme. That is super extreme. So extreme. And this is daily that he was dealing with. And even like through his divorce, she was so unstable and wouldn't move out and was having seizures and like there was all of this ordeal the fact that we even came together is really amazing but it just you know with katie it was just it was so instinctual that i just i need to take care of her i need to get her fed and i need to help her and with brenna it was a she was a little bit more resistant but she was 13 she only weighed 89 pounds because she was tiny five foot four very very thin and I was, these girls need to be taken care of. And it was like, I was almost concerned. And there was, I'd say for a couple of days, even kind of questioned the person I was dating. Why are they so small? Why are you not taking care of them? And it was just a very, you know, that nurse brain kicks in. Like, what are you not doing to meet their nutritional and their basic needs? And he would tell me, I have to be at work at four o'clock in the morning and I'm there till 8 p.m. sometimes. And it had gotten to the point because she was not allowed to be alone with the children. He had to bring in respite workers, healthcare professionals to stay with the girls because they were not allowed to be alone with their own mother. So when I started seeing that, I was like, whoa. At this point, you know the challenges that you're you're about to face as far as what the yes. diagnoses are and everything like that. But with the oldest, what were some things that you experienced that pushed you to, because you fought for her diagnosis. Is that correct? Yes, I fought very hard. So when I first got her, she had self-harmed a couple times. Um, they were dealing with some depression. Like, um, the biological mother. Like suicidal sorry. ideation or self, like self-harm? Yes. Okay. So self-harm, like scratches and um, she's, so everything is real superficial with her. And so a lot of mental health professionals will discredit it because it's not deep wounds. It's just superficial. Like she'll use um, pencil erasers and rub her arm until it creates an abrasion. Or she will chew her fingernails until a point and then scratch at herself until it just barely breaks the skin. Um, one of the major things that right before we got her into her residential care facility is she would bite the inside of her mouth until her cheeks would bleed. And because even though she wants to hurt, um, I say she wants to hurt, this is like her thought process, I guess. She wants to hurt, but she doesn't want people to know that she wants to hurt. There's a lot of shame with really with anything about mental health but really with reactive attachment disorder is they have a lot of shame they're ashamed of everything because they've been so heavily abused and they're ashamed of what has happened to them and it's embarrassing that they were abused and stuff like that that they will hide a lot of it they're very secretive they tell a lot of lies there's a lot of hiding and dishonesty. There's a lot of food hoarding because they're even scared to tell you that they're hungry. So they hide food in their rooms a lot. They don't know where they're, because at one point they maybe didn't know where their meal would come from. So they hide food and they're embarrassed because they know logically that they're going to be fed now. But there's just that survival mode that is so ingrained in them that they have to store and hide and things like that. So with her, I... At the time, when I first came into her life, she was diagnosed with depression, ADHD, and anxiety. And that was it. And about two months into Tim and I dating, she had been sexually assaulted by someone at school, which I will go deeper into that story in a minute. But 
she had been touched and kind of roughed up at school and there was police reports and nurse exams and there was all this other kind of stuff. So I knew that was May of 2017. So I knew going into all of this that there was quite a bit. She needed a lot of nurturing. I knew that her biological mom had been very distant because of alcoholism and things of that nature. But I did not know the true depth of the abuse that she had suffered physical, emotional, verbal, and sexual until some of it I'm still learning. It's a still ongoing journey because as she goes through her therapies, more and more comes out because she's becoming more connected with her dad and I and becoming more comfortable in sharing the things that have happened to her. So what are some things that you have experienced directly as a result of this, um, you know, of her behavior, of the survival mode she has. So she's, like I said, she lies quite a bit. And as a mom, that's not okay. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. So there's that struggle. And I didn't know. So I've made a million and five mistakes, but that's part of being a mom. But I, I didn't know what we were dealing with so there was a lot of just why are you lying why are you doing this you know and it was very obvious things a lot of times you tell her to go throw something away and then you find it in her room well why did you if you wanted the lipstick why didn't you ask for it why did you just steal it why did you go in my rooms and steal things and because she's in that survival mode instead of you know crying or lying a little bit more and then becoming honest or just becoming honest immediately she would become extremely defensive and then extremely aggressive. Uh, Britta has attacked me more times than I can even account for at this point. Like physically, we have physically thought, attacked you or verbally? Yes, uh, both. Verbal is very, very often. But it segues into physical nine times out of ten. Uh, she... Um, has attacked me blindly. So I've been like sitting on the floor folding laundry and come up and kicked me in the back of the head. I've been punched in the face. I've been beaten with various items in the house. We have to restrain her prior to her going into residential. We've had to restrain her quite a bit. We've had to have police involvement. I think we're up to eight times now. Uh, The very first time I had to call the police was March of 2019. So just a little over a year ago. The, it was the day before we put her into her very first facility, long-term facility. Uh, she had had three short-term facilities before that. And one had actually suggested that she go into residential. And so we started looking into that. And that person is also the person that suggested that she had reactive attachment disorder. So when we were looking into the residential facilities, that's when I was looking for one that would screen her and diagnose her with this. And that's what I was told would happen at the one that she was at. So yes, I've had lots of, she's pulled knives on me multiple times. Uh, The very first time we had to call the police, she pulled a 10 inch chopping blade and ran at me with it. And then when she saw that I could overpower her, she went to turn it on herself. And I had to hit her hand against a our countertop in order to get the knife out of her hand. And then I restrained her and called 911 in order for them to come and help me. And they transported her by ambulance to the crisis unit in Indianapolis, the closest hospital that had an open bed. Um, that there's a lot of times in our story that we called and reached out to mental health facilities and couldn't find them. And so we would have to kind of like a shelter in place in our home. There's been more than once where I've had to empty her entire room and give her nothing but a mattress because she was self-harming and I couldn't even trust her with sheets or nails for her wall. So I had to take things off of her wall, her decorations away from her. As crude and cruel as that sounds, when someone is in that survival state and they're agitated and they want to harm and they want to die, they will use any means necessary. And whether it's a thumbtack or our, her most recent self-harm was two days ago, she took a staple off of a packet about self-harming and scratched up her whole arm. And it's not, it's, det- it doesn't sound like, I mean, to me, the way, just for reassurance for you, the way that you're describing, I mean, she's if she's determined to act violently towards herself or someone else, 
it sounds like she can be very creative in the ways that, you know, that that's going to happen. So it's not cruel to remove any potential, you know, self-harming devices that could be in there. I mean, again, like you said, even stapler or nails in the wall or anything like that. Like, unfortunately, you've been exposed to it enough to realize that she will get creative and you yes. have to protect she, her. Absolutely. If she wants it to happen, she will, it, she'll, she'll do it. Right now, she is in a facility in Arkansas, which is the most amazing facility that I had. I fought so hard to get her into. And I feel like superwoman that I got her in here. And I'm so glad it's amazing because I fought so hard for it. But she is in a restrictive status right now that's called TRSS and it's called therapeutic restrictive shutdown and what that is is because she's not making progress and she's actually becoming pretty violent even there that they have put her it's almost like a solitary confinement room so she's all by herself staff have to see her she's on an eyeball status so she has to be an eyesight of staff 24 7 and she's allowed out of her room once a day for one hour and she has a series of work that she has to complete and she has to share with her family before she's allowed off this restrictive status and even in that status she has self-harmed three times in the past seven days and attacked another peer once i mean what is your what does your husband think of everything going on i mean we're talking mainly about your perspective and that's what this is about but just what is your husband thinking he has so much guilt because he kept her in that situation for so long she was 13 years old and so he had been with this woman for 15 years at that time two years prior and then the 13 of her life and he knew that she was an alcoholic he knew that she was doing things wrong Bruno was taken by DHS Two times when before Brennan was five years old, she went into foster care because TJ was Tim. He would go, call him TJ, so I'm trying not to go back and forth. But Tim was deployed, and he both times that he was deployed, she was taken by DHS. So he knew some of the abuse that had gone on, but didn't know the extent of it. So he has a lot of guilt that he feels she wouldn't be who she is now had he removed her earlier. Um, he feels very sad that I have to take a lot of this on. He's very thankful. I am very thankful that a lot of families that are in this position that we're in, we, there is a very small community, but there is a community of parents who go through the lifestyle of reactive attachment disorder. It's known as RAD. So there's a lot of RAD parents out there. And he does not blame me at all, which it can be rare at times. And he's so supportive of me. He's now become very protective over me uh, through the journey through all of this. I've lost almost 200 pounds. So who at one point I was 330 pounds. I now weigh 175 pounds. Wow. So good for quite, you. Thank you. I'm not quite the slugger I was to kind of manhandle this girl anymore. And I've gotten her a lot healthier. So she weighs 150 pounds now. She's five foot seven. She's gone from 89 pounds to 150 pounds. In that aggression, you know, she can overpower me now. So he's very protective. He's very loving. He's very supportive. Anything that I really feel that I need to do, whether it's to do for myself or self-care or for the kids, he's very supportive. He's very, he, we're all so on the same page. It, it's just very, very fortunate. And I'm very lucky because, like I said, there's a lot of families that split up because of Rad, because the dads really blame the moms, even if it's, a complete foster family again it's a lot of times the women who get the most abuse of the rad children because of the abuse that was suffered by the moms or from the moms so he's very supportive he doesn't blame me at all he feels very bad a lot of guilt so a lot of we have to really work through our relationship that he doesn't beat himself up so we do a lot of compassionate care workbooks and stuff like that with us as a couple just to help him be kind to himself that he did what he thought was best at that time and he was trying as a father and yes he should have gotten out sooner but had he not had she not had that DUI it may have been the worst case scenario so there's a lot of me supporting him and his decision to stay as long as he did 
and also recognizing that he did what he could do and had to do at the time. And besides the books and things like that, is there anything else? Like, how do you stay positive? Because you sound very lively in the way you speak and you're very, um, you're just so enjoyable to talk with. So I, I sense a lot of love and strength and patience with you. And especially having, being in a marriage with somebody who has children from a previous marriage, it takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of patience but to have what you have on top of that is incredible. So there have, do you have tricks? How do you stay positive when things aren't so positive? I mean, I would lie if I said that I, I did have those moments. I mean, there's been moments this week where I've gotten off the phone and I'm like, oh, I hate this child. And you're going to have those moments and you're not a bad mom for that. And in that moment, I do. I hate her behavior. and I don't hate her. I hate her behavior and I just have to stop and I really have to think she is a product of her environment and she is a product of poor choices that is beyond her control. Yes, a lot of the decisions she makes now are her choices, but it's because she is a product of that environment and I just have to really remind myself and channel my blame. I mean, yes, she's punching me in my face, but why is she punching me? Because someone else punched her and told her she was worthless and she was a POS. And that's why she's now channeling that out. And I mean, there is that part which is twisted, but it's kinda, I got it from a therapist. I am loving her so much and so thoroughly that it's bringing this out. If I wasn't giving her the love that she needed and the support and the structure that she needs, she wouldn't be reacting this way. So I mean, it sounds kind of twisted, but it's like she's only displaying these behaviors because she finally has what she needs. And in a weird way, that's reassuring that I'm doing what is necessary for her. And these, these babies, it's not their fault. It's not Katie's fault that her mom drank a fifth of vodka while she was pregnant. It's not Brenda's fault that her mom at 10 years old taught her how to use a sexual device on herself and then she had to have it surgically removed. That's not Brenda's fault. Oh and... They need someone to love them and to hold them. At 13 years old, Brenna had never had her hair braided. I mean, it makes me almost cry just talking about it. My mom, she was all over us. I, mean, I had real long, dark Native American hair, and my mom would braid it 50 different ways 50 times a day. And at 13, her mom had never braided her hair. Katie had never been had like an Easter dress or a Christmas dress at five years old because dads don't do that you, you can't blame a dad for that <laughs> you know dad dad make sure that they're cold and that's about it so it's just they these girls need this so much and the fact that I am lucky enough to provide them the love that they need so much to me it's it's a blessing and it's hard and no one wants to get beat up and no one wants to get called every single name imaginable I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been called the C word. It's almost like it's my middle name at this point. But oh I, I mean, just just last Wednesday during a family therapy session, she stood up and was screaming all of the curse words at me just to get a rise out of me. So I just kind of laughed and I said, is it out of your system now? No. And so she screamed a couple more and I said, okay, so do you feel better? No okay, well then sit down and talk to me like a human being with respect then. And she sat down and we had the rest of our therapy session. Regardless of how extreme it is, that's going to be majority of teenagers in general. They do these things that purposely hurt you uh, to get that rise and and to get that attention. Absolutely. And that's kind of what we're, the hard part that we're dealing with is she suffered so much psychological abuse for 13 years and you know, she has a huge fear of abandonment because her mom left her repeatedly and chose repeatedly to leave her. So now this new woman comes in and has only been here for three years. Well, she's saying, you're not going to leave me. Yeah. You know, so I, I have to prove every day, even in the muck of it all and with the her being as nasty as she is and as nasty as everything she can throw at me, she's throwing it at me. I still have to smile at her and say, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, I can hang up the phone and I can fall apart and I'm so fortunate to have someone that I can lean on, but it's just, you have to show them that you're there and you're not leaving and it's not their fault. And I mean, I can't 
stress out enough, it's not their fault. And it's so hard to not blame them when they're the ones that are spewing the hate at you. But, you know, it's just, you're dealing with teenage hormones. She's 16, she'll be 16 in a day. And so she has all these teenage hormones and the normal teenage things, plus all this abuse and the survival mode that are just battling each other at the same time. You fought okay. for this diagnosis. You fought for her protection and for her to experience that love. But you said that it's you being there and, and, you know, these, they need that love. And it's just, I hope you know how much of a blessing it is the fact that you have that inside of you. Because a lot of people can point and say, that child needs to be loved. Well, that child needs to be loved. Or that one needs more attention. And people can do that all day. But for you to step up and say, I'm actually going to love them. I'm not going to look to my husband and expect him to give all the love. And I'm just going to sit back and relax. It's a 50-50 thing. It's about giving them love all the time. And you were able to step in and do that. Thank you so much. It, it, it is. And, you know, in the midst of all this, you have these three tiny humans that you have to take care of and you have to help. And, you know, like you said, I, I fought for this. So when she was in her first residential facility that she was in for eight months, they did not believe in this diagnosis. And I will not talk negative or username or anything, but they they did not believe this diagnosis. And they, like a lot of healthcare professionals that are not abreast to this diagnosis, they blamed the parents. They blamed me. Um, I was excluded from even her treatment for a time, for about four months. They would threaten us every three weeks with her release. It was very, very rough. But again, I thought, and I said, no, this is not my fault. This is, she's not trying to hurt herself because of me. She's not doing this because of me. She's doing this because of something else. And it's deeper and it's more serious than me. And one day it was kind of, kind of like the heavens opened up. I was at a medical appointment and my husband received a phone call. He was with me and it was a caseworker through our insurance that, specializes in mental health and she said hey I'm calling to offer my services because it looks like Brenna has been receiving mental health services for a long time and needs more intensive help and we're like we didn't even know we have a caseworker like who is this sweet baby angel that just came upon us <laughs> you know who sent you and she goes oh you know like I just was looking and she's been receiving care for a long time so I decided to reach out to you to see if you need any help my husband's like well my wife is about to have surgery so can we call you back and she goes well let me schedule a time so she called us back on that Monday that was a Friday and we went over what we were going through and she was mortified and she said you need help you need more intensive help and she said as a so all these caseworkers are registered nurses and she said I can tell you right now this child has reactive attachment disorder oh hallelujah thank you yes and so she said there's two facilities that we recommend, we have TRICARE, because like I said, he's active duty military. And she said there's two big ones in TRICARE. One is in Colorado, so that was a huge no, because that's where bio mom is. And the other one's in Arkansas. So we live in Whiteland, Indiana, and this was in Arkansas. It's about 800 miles away. So it's scary. She was already in about 45 minutes away from us, and that was far enough. So now we're about to send her nine hours away. So we went ahead and did it and spoke to the facility and spoke to her current facility about it. And they said, she doesn't mean that. She's ready to go home. No, excuse me. No, she's not. And so even through the whole process of us trying to get her into the new facility, her facility at the time, about every three or four days would call us. So have you gotten approval yet? Because she doesn't need it. She's coming home. Are you sure she doesn't? She can just come home. I can just let her out today. So there's all that because she's not safe. And that's the biggest thing is that we need her safe. And she wasn't safe to herself or others. And so we worked so hard. And last October, my husband and I actually did our marriage ceremony and everything had our family come together in Destin, Florida. And we were about to leave on our destination wedding. And our insurance said, hey, we don't think that this is appropriate and actually denied it. And we were distraught because they were releasing her from the facility that she was at. So we're like, she's not safe. She had a, that month alone, we had already called the police twice. So we were very, very scared, very upset. This was the end of September, 2019. And 
our caseworker called and she goes, well, you can write a letter. And in this letter, be very detailed, be very specific about why you feel like she needs this. So we wrote a 12-page letter that outlined every single thing that she'd ever been through. Um, a lot of it was me, because again, men aren't always fantastic at words. So I would have him kind of help me with timelines of stuff before I came into the picture and with all the rehabs that the bio mom had been through. I think we were at like 14 at the time. So we just outlined everything, very specific, outlined everything that we had been going through, all of that. And we submitted the letter the day before we left for our marriage ceremony. And the day that we got back to Indiana, our caseworker called us and she was approved. Oh my and gosh. so there was just like this huge sigh of relief because we were, that was our last, you know, that was our Hail Mary. That was our last hope. So we just, we sent it the day we left and we said, okay, we're wiping our hands. We're going to go have a wonderful time. We're going to go spend a week in Destin. We're going to pledge our love to each other in front of our family. And we're just, get, we're going to do this. And so we did it and we just didn't think about it, which was really hard. <laughs> And so the day we got back, we our caseworker called us and she goes, she's approved. Um, I will connect you with the facility and you guys can work together. The people at the facility have been absolutely amazing. We picked her up on November 4th, very early in the morning, directly from the facility to the airport. Uh, it was a very scary time because I had to travel from Indiana, Indiana to Little Rock, Arkansas to get her into this place by myself, which is a very hard thing. Um, I would be in a rental car with her alone for a little bit to drive to the facility, which again, she's very aggressive on me. And not only is she not getting out of facilities, we're now taking her nine hours away from all of her friends and family. So I, I expected a lot of aggression. She held it together that whole day till right before I left. She picked a huge fight with me and tried to aggress on me in front of staff, which was pretty typical because she was sad and she can't process those emotions and those feelings. So she just lashed out at me. So that day I'm trying to say goodbye to her. And this is a very hard emotional thing that I have fought so hard for, but it's still very hard. And now she's trying to fight me. So it was very rough, but she's been there now for almost five months. And she received the diagnosis within two weeks of arriving, which usually takes three months. So it was very quick to confirm that diagnosis and they every even with all the struggles and the self-harm and the attacks on me verbally thankfully we've had no physical attacks on me at all because I only get to see her once a month in person but they are absolutely amazing we once a month my husband and I leave our other two children with a friend in Indiana and we travel to Arkansas to spend a whole weekend with her and it usually ends up being um, three to four family therapy sessions. We go to a multifamily support group with eight to 10 other families that deal with what we deal with. And then we spend four or five like bonding hours with her. That's incredible. Like, I love that you're, you're just, you're so hands-on with it, no matter what, you're still pushing for it. And my last question for you is what advice would you give parents that are navigating life with a child who has violent or extremely violent tendencies? My, my biggest thing is find the root of it. And I know that sounds so superficial, but there's a reason why they're attacking you. Um, kids are going to get angry. Kids are going to get frustrated. And one of the big things I say all the time when it's my, when it's Brenna, my husband and I is I'm the only one that's ever been a teenage girl. You know, Brenna's brand new to this. He's He was never a teenage girl. So I say, I'm the only one with experience as a teenage girl, and I never did this. So to me, yes, every kid is different. Every person has a different background. But there's a root of that. It is not ingrained in you to want to hurt someone. So if you're wanting to hurt someone, you're wanting to turn a knife on them, you're wanting to beat them with a remote, there's a reason. Get to that root, that, get to that reason. Is it because somebody hurt them? Is it because somebody else pulled a knife on them? Is it because they don't trust you? Well, why don't they trust you? Get to that root and fight for your kids. They deserve it, no matter what. Fight for them. If a professional tells you they don't have this or you're the crazy one, follow that gut instinct. That mother intuition is golden. I wish I could bottle it and give it to other people, but follow that. Fight for your kids. You know your kids. 
you know when something's wrong with them, even if they're your stepkids. This I only had experience with her the first time I had her put into a short-term facility in Greenwood, Indiana. I had only been her mother for about 10 months. Oh, wow. And I knew that, that was it. It was the very first time in January of 2018. And I just knew, like, she was going to hurt herself. She was tying scarves together and was searching on a old kind of a bootleg phone that we had laying around that the little one watches YouTube on, was watching how to tie a noose videos and was hiding it. And I was like, no, she needs, she needs to go. And she went and spent 14 days in this facility and did three short-term stints over a year before she did, has done this long-term. But just follow your intuition. You know your kids. Pay attention to them. Pay attention to the little things. Why are they hiding this food? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? Why do they want to hurt others? Why are they wanting to hurt themselves? I've been very angry with myself. I've made millions of mistakes. I've never wanted to hurt myself. And when you want to hurt yourself, it's a deeper cause. And just listen to them and follow your intuition is probably the best advice, which sounds very hokey, but it's true. Not at all. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for being so open and honest. This is something people need to hear. You're not the only one that has gone through something like this. It's opened my eyes up to a lot as well. I'm not currently experiencing that level of, you know, behavior, but I can still sympathize with the love that you continue to pour in uh, any any situation. And being a step parent and the challenges that I, I understand uh, that we didn't even discuss on this podcast, yeah. but there's so many different aspects to your story that I feel like have so such great value. So thank you. And if you have any questions for Tracy, go ahead and give me an email at mugswithmoms at gmail.com. Again, this is Mugs with Moms. Tracy, thank you again for joining us and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. 